0: The Federal Liberals unwrap their throne speech with many promises for Canadians. The only problem is the visions about as clear as your view on a blinding snowstorm. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Café. I'm Ed Hand. Governor General Julie Payette read the roadmap the Grits are laying out for their next mandate. This one will be a little trickier to navigate with just a minority behind the wheel. And they'll need a dance partner in the form of the Bloc or NDP to make things happen. Among the baubles for Canadians, more strides toward climate change, a more affordable middle class, an aim to reduce homelessness and a closer relationship with Canada's Indigenous peoples. All laudable goals, but the point of a map is to tell you how to get there, and this seems to be a little fuzzy on the details. The vote on the throne speech will come in the new year, and will be anticlimactic, as the bloc's already said it will support it. Today on the Unpublished Cafe, we'll take a look at the throne speech, as well as this week's surprise announcement that Conservative leader Andrew Scheer is stepping down from the post. Joining us later on the show to analyze the issues, Frank Graves, founder and president of Ecos Research. First, I'm pleased to be joined by lawyer, columnist, political strategist, and former special advisor to Prime Minister Jean Chrétien, Warren Kinsella. And Warren, thank you for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Were you expecting the throne speech to have more specifics or direction, more than just the platitudes we were handed?
1: No, I was expecting tapioca pit pudding, and that's what we've got. Well, actually, let me amend that. I mean, if it was specific, it was specific in the way that a you know a love note is. It was a love note, I think, to the Bloc Quebecois, to to the NDP. Um, because it's critically important that the Trudeau government maintain the support of those two opposition parties if it wishes to survive. And they had a reminder of their new situation. Uh, Later on that same day, I believe, uh, there was a vote on uh, opening up the China file and all the many problems associated with China in committee, and the government was defeated. So I think that was kind of an existential reminder for them that um, the uh, government that they had before is no longer the government they've got now.
0: Did you see or hear anything in the speech that signaled a desire to cooperate with the other parties?
1: Yeah, it was, you know, the, the, for example, the um, language about uh, gun crime was aimed, uh, no pun intended, right at the Bloc Québécois because that was a big part of their election platform the um there's quite a bit of language about climate change and and obviously that was a preoccupation with a lot of younger canadians and canadians in central canada uh so that was principally aimed at the new democrats what i what i was struck by really was what wasn't in the throne speech uh i thought it was sad to be uh straight with you that the government couldn't even bring itself to name my home province of alberta and the you know the Very, very tough times that uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan have been going through over the past uh, five years now. Um, They couldn't even use the word pipeline. They didn't say oil. Um, It was just this euphemistic language. And, you know, for people in Western Canada who are looking for some sign that the government understands that. You know, they sent a message, and that message is <laughs> reflected in the fact there isn't a single Liberal MP between Winnipeg and Vancouver. I, I'm not sure um, the throne speech; it was a little t- tone deaf on on that part.
0: Now, we mentioned well, there was mention of the healing regional divides, and how much do you feel the block supporting this throne speech is going to help those regional divides?
1: the uh, The block leader is a very capable politician, uh, way more than I think a lot of people in the rest of Canada understand. Um, he is the most, most formidable separatist leader, because he is, in fact, a separatist that the Bloc Quebecois has had since Lucien Bouchard, and as we all recall, it was Bouchard, not Parisot, who brought Canada to the brink of dissolution in 1995. So I take this guy very seriously, and I think that uh, he is an excellent communicator. He's obviously quite intelligent, and I think it would be a big mistake for them to underestimate him. So that's the problem that Trudeau's got on one flank, and the problem he's got on the other flank is that people where I come from in Western Canada are very upset with the government. They feel disenchanted from uh, Canada itself, from Confederation. And, you know, it's given rise to uh, kind of a nascent separatist movement. I'm not too worried about that. What I'm more worried about is people in Western Canada kind of giving up on Canada. And, um, you know, we don't need to emulate what has happened in the United States, where there's really two countries in one. That gives rise to all kinds of problems.
0: You don't see this country as two countries? Just when you look at those divides?
1: Uh, I do, in a sense. It's not, it's geographic in the sense that, like, for example, if you look at uh, urban centres in Western Canada and you look at vote, um, you know, in Calgary, you know, where I'm from, you know, there was always a liberal vote of about 20%, even during the dark days in the National Energy Program. So the divide uh, that Trudeau is facing, um, and I guess all the leaders are, is is uh, rural and urban, but although the urban centers are coming to dominate more, that's why Trudeau won. You know, that's why he won uh, seats in Ontario that uh, Sheer had been counting on. Um, so there, we've got divides all over the place. So I think you're quite right. I think you know we've had those for a while, but they've gotten a lot worse in the in the past four years.
0: Warren Kinsella joining us on the unpublished cafe as we take a look at the federal throne speech and uh, the announcement that Andrew Scheer is stepping down as leader of the uh, conservative party. And he came out heavily against the throne speech saying Trudeau is toned after to Western fears and it really won't matter now as he's bowing out as the party's party's leader. How, how much did that take you by surprise or did you feel that was inevitable considering the election result?
1: I was surprised he did it as soon as he did. Uh, I'd been talking to uh, partisan conservatives for a few days, including people that he is close to. And what I'd been told uh, since election night, in fact, is that his heart really wasn't in it anymore. And I think the evidence of that is seen in the fact that there was really no organization taking place on the ground in support of his continued leadership. You know, that's the best indicating indicator of You know, how a leader is thinking is whether he or she is bothering to fight for their job or not. And he just really wasn't. You know, there was some online stuff, but that was it. Whereas his critics were organized and fundraising and they had websites and they were doing the media tours and all that kind of stuff. And they looked like they were, you know, they were gunning for bear. So um, I thought uh, I felt badly for him having gone through this uh, sort of thing with Mr. Chrétien when he was prime minister. You know, notwithstanding the fact that uh, he uh, won a huge majority in the year 2000, we still had the Paul Martin people nipping at our ankles like a thousand ducks, and it's it's hard to deal with that when you're in a position of leadership. It's, you know, you can't strike out because you're prime minister, or you're a leader of the opposition. So um, my understanding is it wasn't the private school stuff. It wasn't that the Baird report wasn't done yet. He just had it with the BS and decided to pack it in.
0: So, in terms of uh, uh, the, the announcement from from Andrew Shear, after that, there was the accusations about uh, the foundation funding his uh, kids' education. You don't think that was part of the issue?
1: No, I think that, that his uh, opponents, well, I know for a fact his opponents were using it as another, you know, thing to make his uh, grip on his job looser they were using it to hurt him and persuade him to leave um and they'd been doing stuff like that for a number of days and uh uh basically you know trying to drive him crazy but it, you know as i say and from what i understand the conservative fund uh, the appropriate people had approved it uh it wasn't paying for all of the kids education it was paying for the gap between what would have been in regina compared to what it, what it is in ottawa I can tell you, having worked for many uh, uh, premiers and, and uh, prime minister or two over the years, all of the part, political parties supplement the salary of the political leaders. And the reason for that is is pretty straightforward. They have to send flowers to funerals. They have to send gifts and commendations to constituents. Um, they have to travel a lot. They have to ensure that their shoes are shined and their, you know, suits are new and all that kind of stuff. There are a lot of expenditures associated with being a party leader. So those expenses, uh, for the most part, are quite legitimate. Sometimes they are not. Um, you know, we saw with Bev Oda, the $16 orange juice, and that enraged people. But, um, you know, from what I understand, in this case, Mr. Shear had approval for what he did.
0: Warren Kinsella joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. And, and how much uh, do you think a leadership race will cripple the Conservatives' ability to act as official opposition?
1: Um, I don't think, uh, well, I, you know, I'm an old guy, so uh, I used to love Question Period and, and all the rest of it. And then I was driving through Hope, B.C., one day, a few years ago, and I just kind of looked around the diner I was in, and I was like, you know what? I don't think there's anybody here who's ever watched, question period. Mm-hmm. Not, only they, not only do they not watch it, they probably see it as what is wrong with politics, not as what is right with politics. So I've become firmer in my view uh, over the years. I think, you know, you look at Tom Mulcair. Tom Mulcair was probably the most formidable opposition leader since Joe Clark. And, um, you know, what did it get those two guys, right? Nothing. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I think what really matters is putting before the Canadian people, uh, before the next election takes place sometime in the next 18 to 24 months, um, you know, a leader who is a true progressive conservative. That was the message from the 2019 campaign is, you know, you just can't have a social conservative as your leader anymore because of that urbanization of Canada that I referred to earlier, you know, just as like Preston Manning showed, they'll never again be another uh, unilingual uh, federal party leader. Um, 2019 showed us that they'll never again be a, um, you know, a leader who has the positions on abortion and equal marriage that Mr. Mr. Shear did. I know he held those positions genuinely and, Uh, He felt that there was a way to present them and still get support, but there wasn't. You know, he was up against the prime minister who'd been alleged to obstruct the justice, a prime minister who had worn blackface, a prime minister who uh, had been involved in multiple controversies and scandals, and he still couldn't beat that guy. And so you got to ask, well, why is that? And a big part of it was his uh, social conservative views.
0: Now, the conservatives, uh, as they head into this leadership race, this is more than just looking at names and 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 who could possibly lead this party. They have to sort of, as you mentioned, a more progressive conservative look. They, they have to sort of address that within the party before they can move forward,
1: do they not? Yeah, they do. And uh, I saw an excellent article. I don't know who wrote it yesterday, but, you know, they need to figure out who they are. Right. Mm-hmm. And. Um, you know, kind of land on what their ideology and what it is they want to offer to the Canadian people. And this, you know, approach they take traditionally where they just, you know, well, we'll just pick a new leader and he or she will be different and we'll get elected. That really hasn't worked for them. Uh, If you look at the the two Conservative leaders who have been most successful and who led for a decade each, it was Mulroney and Harper, And those two men, whether you like them or not, kind of shaped the party in a particular way, right? It it stood for certain things. And then they presented themselves to the Canadian people, and obviously it it worked. You know, you need to, in this business, you need to stand for something. People need to have a sense that you believe in something. You've got a passion, you know, about something. My guy, uh, Christian, they always knew what it was. The end of every speech, Vive la Canada, right? He believed in a united and strong Canada. And with Mr. Scheer, um, it was just hard to figure out what he stood for, you know, because he'd kind of hidden the American citizenship thing and the insurance broker thing. And he was unclear about his views on social issues. And it just lent itself to the narrative that he doesn't really believe in anything. So, um, you know, whether they liked Trudeau or not, and they, you know, quite a few, you know, several million Canadians didn't, they at least had a sense of what his passions were, what his views were, and with Mr. Shear, they didn't
0: whom of the the names that have been thrown around uh, as a possible replacement do you see as the biggest challenge for the liberals
1: uh Ambrose um you know, I put up a little poll on uh, Twitter on my website, you know and it's unscientific, but it it really did attract about seven thousand votes, not just conservatives but also you know liberals and people who vote New Democrat. So it was a cross section. I can't tell you what the margin of error was, but right out of the gates, right throughout the succeeding days. And it's still up. um, But 60, 61 percent indicated that Rona Ambrose was the the leader they should pick. And Erin O'Toole, Michelle Rempel, Peter McKay, none of them came close to the kind of support that she's got. So, um you know, I think something like that is meaningful, uh, not not you know my poll, just the consensus that you know you need a centrist, smart, experienced uh, leader uh, to go up against Trudeau, and you know his the base of his support, if you look at it, he doesn't have young people in the way that he used to. A lot of them have gravitated back towards the new Democrats and the greens. But the reason why he's still prime minister is because of Canadian women. And Canadian mm. women were repelled by sheers position on abortion and equal marriage. So they stayed with Trudeau, even though they're not happy with him. Some of them are mad at him. Well, the best person to address that is a smart, experienced woman like Ronna Ambrose or, or Michelle Rempel. And I think uh, if Ambrose is there, you know, unless there's some big scandal in the closet that I'm unaware of, um, I think she has an excellent chance of beating him.
0: Warren, I want to thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Warren Kinsella is a political strategist, columnist, lawyer, and former special advisor to former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien. Now, Andrew Scheer won't be voting against the throne speech as leader of the opposition, as he has announced he is stepping down, although he will vote against it as an MP. And it's likely considering his views on climate change, which in the throne speech had really the only clear goal zero emissions by 2050. Joining us on the cafe to chat about the throne speech and the conservatives heading into a leadership race is Frank Graves, president and founder of. Of ECOS Researcher. Thank you for joining us Frank. My pleasure. Now this throne speech is likely not facing any hurdles considering the blocs already committed to supporting and the conservatives are in the throes of a leadership race. Considering it won't be until April that the party will have a new leader, does this help or hurt the liberals in moving forward with the agenda?
2: Well right now it probably helps them. Uh, in fact some of the areas where they might have wanted to move forward before but we're concerned about maybe uh stepping outside of some of their constituency will actually be helped by this parliament i think because for example an issue like national pharmacare or exploring uh, uh benefits for dental care these are things i think they would have liked to look at but maybe have been a bit nervous but uh, in the current uh in the current parliament uh, i think they're actually more likely to be able to move forward on things like that with the basically the support of all of the other parties except the conservatives on those particular items But generally speaking, I think they should be in pretty good shape with this throne speech.
0: Did the throne speech lay out a clear path forward, in in your view?
2: Um, There were some common themes that they tried to organize it around, and I guess, yeah, there is a narrative, there's a story on it. When you start looking how it's translated into the actual mandate letters, you realize it's a pretty complex uh, series of moving parts that they put together, a lot of things on that agenda. But the general themes, I think, are are relatively clear and... uh, you know mostly in keeping with what they laid out in their platform and there's a lot of continuity actually although i think they're uh they've they've tried to summarize it or, uh, and and connect it to some of the uh, current concerns of uh, the the voters
0: you know uh, in terms of the uh you know, the throne speech and there was a lot of uh, a lot of talk towards becoming closer with uh, canada's uh, indigenous people with the current sort of not exactly great relationship between Jody Wilson-Raybould and the the Liberals. Do you see that actually happening?
2: I think they've laid out, well, at least uh, rhetorically, they've laid out a pretty clear set of commitments. It's uh, received a lot of prominence in the speech from the throne. So, yeah, I think, remember that uh, there is a lot of diversity out there in Indigenous uh, communities, and... uh, uh, there are all kinds of different points of view, but I think some of the common themes they've put forward, um, they certainly seem to be things I think would resonate with a large, a large portion of the Indigenous Canadians and with Canadians writ large.
0: Did uh, Andrew Scheer's announcement that he was stepping down as leader take you by a surprise?
2: I wasn't surprised uh, that he would be stepping down. The timing obviously seemed a little uh, confusing or surprising the i I thought that he actually would be uh in reasonably good position to continue on as leader after the election and from from my, my the point of view looking at his performance in the election I, I my personal view is that with the exception of the um ontario and the if Doug Ford had not been premier, I think uh, andrew sher would would have been the prime minister of canada today and so there's a little bit of an irony that some of the architects of his Early exit actually were some of those people who had supported Doug Ford and worked with getting him elected. So there's that's a, that's a bit of an irony, as I said, but yeah, I thought the the timing and I mean there are uh, issues being raised as to whether or not he was, you know, hastened to the door with the leak of certain types of information about his funding for schools and so forth. So yeah, it does seem like there was a combination of some mischief, but I felt when he really was abandoned by the social conservative uh, uh, portion of the um, conservative constituency it really did strike me that it was going to be extremely hard for him to continue because that was really a major part of his constituency uh, going forward it didn't seem to me he was really going to be able to build a future with the more traditional status quo or progressive conservative portion of the party
0: how just going back to the the Doug Ford uh, point uh, how did that uh, impact uh, the, the, at least in your perspective his view uh, Sheer's uh, inability to get through in Ontario.
2: If you were to pick one uh, factor that explained the outcome of the election, then obviously you can't reduce it to one factor. None was more important than what happened in Ontario, and that is directly uh, linked to uh, a fairly acute sense of buyer's remorse amongst Ontario voters who gave Doug Ford a, a, a very uh, convincing mandate about 41% of con- Ontario voters Gave him a, a very solid majority, uh, but we've seen that that uh, enthusiasm waned quickly. And actually, what happened in the polling federally is before any of the other provinces started to get any second thoughts about Mr. Sheer, who was really operating in, in 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 the spring of last year in comfortable majority territory. Was running in the mid, low forties in the polls. The, the Liberals looked like they were really in serious trouble. But what happened is, in Ontario, which started paying attention to this more, we started seeing the numbers really going backwards for the Conservatives in Ontario. They had a 10-point lead in the spring. That turned into a 10-point deficit, which really maintained itself almost through to the election. That is the reason they lost the election. And that loss in Ontario was directly attributed in our polling to people saying they were uncomfortable with the idea that Andrew Scheer would introduce an administration which resembled the one they were seeing in Queen's Park and they simply didn't want that at this stage.
0: Frank Graves is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe, founder and president of Ecos Research. And you know, there are no there's no shortage of possible successes for Andrew Scheer, but does the party need a new leader first or possibly whether a, a new direction or, or or something to clean up the infighting that has plagued this this party since or even before the previous race?
2: Yeah, well, of course, the Conservatives do have a history of uh, circling the wagons and then firing inward. This one, uh, they had actually put that aside, and and admirably, from a political perspective, following years and years of infighting, uh, Stephen Harper effectively unified the party, and uh, we do see some, uh, some fault lines growing as well. I'm personally of the view that... I certainly, they need a new leader now. But I, I did not think that Andrew Scheer was that had performed that poorly. I thought he did, and I don't think people understand this—a pretty adroit job of straddling what are the two main constituencies for the Conservatives right now. We a lot of people understand or are familiar with the traditional sort of progressive conservative, what some call status quo conservatives, believe in free markets, uh, individualism, uh, self-reliance, minimal government. That's really different from some of the new, more uh, authoritarian populist outlook, which we see operating into our neighbors to the south and in in the UK and other parts of the world. And people think that's not operating here. It actually is a very significant force. It's very different from the traditional status quo conservatives. It's more not driven by a belief in private markets and and, and minimal government, but more of a Let's turn back the clock, pull up the drawbridge, uh, make uh, Canada great again. All those sorts of things, those bromides we hear in other places, are definitely at play here, and they're driven by the same levels of economic insecurity, fears about the future. Uh, And he did a pretty good job of of bringing in that new constituency, but not alienating the traditional status quo uh, constituency. And I think that will be a challenge for any leader going forward. Because frankly, you can say the received wisdom was, "Well, we just have to move to the center left if we have a more moderate leader that will solve all our problems, we will do better in Ontario, and so forth." But you do have this very sizable constituency that aren't looking for that at all, and so that will be a real challenge for whoever is the successor for Andrew Scheer.
0: Now, that's exactly where I wanted to go. Was this research you've been ta- or looking into with the author- uh, into authoritarian views and and populism when it came to to voting conservative? but it wasn't just conservatives was it
2: no but it was principally we we measure using uh, indices created from international research on this topic whether or not you have more ordered or i don't like the term authoritarian because it it harkens back Mm -hmm. to a very dark period but i like to think about ordered or a fixed outlook and, and, and it's based on asking questions which really have nothing to do with politics or political ideology, things about how you would prefer to see children raised, it's more important to emphasize obedience or creativity, uh, morality or reason, things which are very tough choices and people really want both, but when we force them to make choices we can create a profile of those having this outlook. And it was by far the strongest predictor of whether or not you vote conservative in this last election, just as it was the strongest predictor in the United States of whether you would support Donald Trump, and it was the strongest predictor in Brexit of whether you were a, a, a leaver or a stayer. The, uh, so yes, and what we did find interestingly is that it didn't just predict really, really well whether you voted conservative, which it wouldn't have, by the way, in 2011, and not much so in 2015. So this is new, but it also explains shifting behavior. So there was, the conservatives did lose some voters to the liberals who were, had a more ordered outlook, uh, sorry, more open outlook. And, but by corollary, the Liberals uh, lost a lot of voters to the Conservatives, who actually shared some of this uh, more ordered outlook as well. So it is the new sorting mechanism, and it's really going to be a challenge. And my view is that in Canada, there is a, a lack of understanding that it exists, let alone what to do about it.
0: Now, you say this isn't new, but do you think it's here to stay?
2: I think it's here for a while, and mm-hmm. I don't believe that the election settled anything. In fact, the view that uh, amongst a lot of the institutional elite who tend to s- dismiss this with some somewhere in a spectrum from sneering to denial, is that oh my God we dodged that bullet you know Canada somehow is inoculated from this uh, it's too bad America and, and the UK are falling into the thrall of this movement uh, but that's not what we saw at all we saw an election which produced dip, deep divisions. Uh, more so than we've seen, and they aren't limited to regional. They're divisions based on social class, divisions based on gender, divisions based on what part of the country you live in, whether you have a university education or not, and they very closely track with this open order. In fact, some have argued, and I'd, I'd, I'd go along with it, that the traditional sort of left right spectrum is really being displaced by this. Open order access which is becoming the new contest for the future and the fact that the liberals managed to form a government with uh, while losing the popular vote and with these levels of dissatisfaction that we saw in our exit polling the highest dissatisfaction with a federal election in many years if not ever this sets the table for some very serious challenges so Let's just see what happens, particularly if we run into another global economic meltdown uh, similar to 2008. And It's hard to imagine that something like that isn't out there in, in the wings, uh, given what's going on with the American economy, which has been flying on a high, on a sugar high, with a trillion-dollar deficit spending and is not showing signs of fundamental strength. We'll see what happens. But I think there's a very challenging period ahead for governments in Canada.
0: Now, as we had mentioned off the top, Andrew Shear has stepped down as opposition leader, and that leaves the door wide open for, for obviously, a new face. And a number of new faces have popped up. Uh, well, not necessarily new, but uh, in this race, uh, Peter McKay, Ronna Ambrose, Aaron O'Toole, Michelle Rample. From your perspective, which do you think makes the biggest uh, the biggest problem for the federal Liberal Party?
2: Well, uh, I, that's a very good question my concerns right now is finding out what conservative voters themselves think about those that list as well as uh, a range of others and we've been doing some testing and uh, we will be re- reporting on those results on monday but there is some clarity out there, at least amongst Conservative voters, and they, they do have one preferred choice. I won't say it right now, but one of those choices you mentioned has a commanding lead, at least with respect to Conservative voters in Canada. And I think that also reflects the, uh, the, 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 the. in my view, the, that person will also pose some very significant challenges to the Liberals, but I also think that that dilemma that I spoke about e- earlier about how do you kind of bring forward this really different conservative constituency formed from both those with this uh, authoritarian outlook and those with a traditional, you know, status quo or progressive outlook. It's, it's, a, it's a real challenge, and I'm not sure that any of the leaders that we're looking at are going to do a better job than Andrew Shearer at doing that. So we'll wait and see. But I think it's pretty clear where conservative voters are going to go uh, at this stage. Uh, but I'll be releasing that poll on Monday.
0: All right. Frank, I want to thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Frank Graves is the founder and president of ECOS Research. Now it's time for your say. If you were an MP, would you vote for or against the throne speech? You can log on to unpublished.vote and cast your ballot on the question. This is our final podcast of 2019. So on behalf of everyone at the Unpublished Cafe, we wish you the merriest for Christmas and all the best in 2020 when we'll return with more interviews and analysis on the issues facing Canada and Canadians. Thanks for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand.